Hello, this is Brian Lane, lead pastor of FAM Church, and this is our podcast. After a four-week break from our study of the book of James, we return to James chapter 4 and look at what a self-centered life can do to wreck our walk with Jesus. All right, well, good morning. Welcome to FAM Church, everyone. As you came in, did you smell the grill cooking our food for lunch? Who smelled the smell? It's amazing, isn't it? So I figured because we got lunch here, I can do a two for one and we can do two messages in one and I can keep you in here for like an hour and a half. Is that all right? No, we're not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Uh, but uh, hey, we're headed back into the book of James today. Um, you know, after, at Easter time, we went out for our Easter message, and then we had a three-week Game of Thrones series and uh, Mother's Day in there, and so we're headed back into the book of James today. We're on part eight, and so if you're saying to yourself, there's seven other parts, really, where are they? If you download the Fam Church app on your smartphone uh, or your tablet or something like that, um, all of our things are there under podcasts, and you can listen to the previous seven messages, and I'm not going to try and review all seven messages today. That would be a whole lot to say, but, uh, but you can go check them out there. Uh, we are going to be in chapter four today, and I'm here to tell you today that these words that James speaks are kind of intense, and it's like a finger pointing in your face. And I know I've said this with a lot of these messages, but that's what we got to understand about this book of James. It's really kind of an intense book when it comes to our spiritual practices. James is a really intense guy. Guy. I, don't, I don't know if you know many intense guys. How many of you find intense guys really high pressure and you don't like to be around them? Okay, there's a couple of people in here. Yeah, sometimes intense people are hard to be around, but James in this section gets up in the reader's face with his crooked, pointy finger and sticks it in their face. Just what y'all want on Memorial Day weekend. You were here to relax, eat some hamburgers, and now we're going to put a finger in your face. There's some good news, though. Hey, I found this out. In the state of Utah, it's a Class B misdemeanor to stick your, point your finger in somebody's face. And so if this really bothers you, I would challenge you to head to Utah after the service and then charge James with a misdemeanor and see if that gets you anywhere. Get him arrested. Because the deal is we don't like it when people, the, the reason they have a law there is because we don't like it when people point fingers in our face, do we? Does anybody like somebody sticking their finger in your face and going like this? No, nobody likes that. How many of you had moms that did that? Yeah, I had a mom that did that. The finger was a message. Uh, we got to make sure we're pointing the right finger at people here. But the finger had a message from mom. The finger said one of multiple things, and it usually meant death on the other side of it, Okay. It was one of those things where she would whip out the finger and she would look at me and go like this and I knew exactly what she was talking about. We were in a store and I was picking up and touching something that shouldn't be touched, right? Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever break anything and your mom had to pay for it because you broke it? All right. Um, she would use that finger to tell me to shut up when she knew I was about to say something stupid because I said a lot of stupid things when I was a kid. Some of you would argue that I still say stupid things now. Um, she would use that finger when I had gone too far. It was a finger of correction. And for most of us, that's the only person we ever want pointing a finger in our face, our moms. Nobody else has that right or authority, but Jesus, through these words in James, is going to do it anyway. 
So with that, let's head over to our text in the book of James. We're in chapter 4, as I said. James is towards the end of the New Testament. If you cannot locate it or do not have a Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me here for you to follow along. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 12 in chapter 4 of the book of James, and this is what it says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is what the scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister judges them and speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? All right, so what's going on here? James is telling the church that they've gone too far. The church that James was writing to had stirred up something in their midst and it needed some sort of correction. And the question for us is this. When we were reading it, could we see James pointing the finger at us in our current time and our situation? Because, you know, I really hope that you do because if we understand what James is talking about here, it should hit every one of us in this room as we read the text. And you may be saying to yourself, well, why is that? I don't understand how. He's talking about getting into fights and quarrels in the church. He's talking about adultery, and I don't feel like I'm a sinner that needs to wash my hands. Well, when James wrote these words, he was not writing a church that was practicing these things either. He was not writing a church that was having, you know, MMA fights in the middle of service. You know, it was like this side against that side, come to the middle and let's brawl, let's tear it up, you know. It wasn't a thing where they had a group of people who were plotting the murder of every in the church and so at night they would sneak sneak off and kill people or there was adultery everywhere that's not what he was writing uh writing to um now maybe fun to hear of a church like that wouldn't it be kind of cool you know really i mean if you're in a church and they like had some fight you know it's like all right this side against this side let's go let's duke this out that'd be kind of fun right we'd maybe even get on tv with that okay we could go viral so if you want to try that we can try that but James, I mean, we're not going to have that much fun in the text. And so what I, what I want to do is, those are not the issues James is dealing with. The reason that we think he said these words is because of who his audience was. If you remember back to the first message in this series, we discovered that James was writing this letter to a predominantly Jewish audience. Because of his audience, he decided to use the same style of writing that the prophets of the Old Testament used. So guys like Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Ezekiel kind of wrote in the same style and fashion that James used here in this text. And it's believed that James did this because he was really trying to grab the reader's attention. He was really trying to get the readers to put their hands on their shoulders and shake themselves awake because he was saying something here. 
And the reason he wanted to get their attention was he felt like what he was talking about was very important for their walk with Jesus. Because in this section, since we started reading in chapter 2 all the way here to chapter 4, James is focusing on what wisdom looks like in the life of the believer. That's kind of his, his focus here. And, um, and uh, he's, he's, what he's saying here is this stuff right here, I really want to shake you awake because I'm about to spit some words to you all that are going to be really important for your spiritual walk. And so he says some crazy intense things to really get that driven into them that they need to pay attention here. So what's so important in this section? James is hitting them hard about one thing in all of this that we read, and that is self-centered living. Listen to what he says. He says you want something, but you don't get it. You covet, but you cannot have what you want. When you pray, you are praying so that you can spend what you get on your pleasures. We slander and speak bad of other people so that it will help us look good. James is making it clear that self-centered living hurts all areas of life, including our walk with Jesus. And so that's what we're going to dig into today is this whole concept of self-centered living. And so to see what that looks like, let's get a definition of this word so we're all on the same page. And a self-centered person, I think we all know what a self-centered person is. It's somebody who is excessively concerned with him or herself, their own needs, and they do what's best for them and them alone. There's not much care or concern when it comes to, other, uh, to the actions that they take when it's, uh, when it's in reference to other people. And the crazy thing about it is if I were to walk through this room and I were to ask everybody here, do you like hanging out with self-centered people? Every single one of us would say, no, man, I hate self-centered people. It's all about them all the time. But we fail to see in us what we see so much in other people. And that is the problem, the basic problem why James had to get so real with them here, is we have a really hard time seeing our own selfish motives, desires, plans, and purposes, and how we use those things to justify things that we really shouldn't be using them to justify with. So how does he want us to deal with it? Well, there's four specific areas that this text tells us that self-centered living hurts us and we need to be awake towards. We're going to cover three of them today and the final one in two weeks. The first area that self-centered living hurts us is in our relationship with others. When we are focused on ourselves, our needs, our wants, our desires, our plans, our purposes, our everything, it will lead us to go to great extremes to make sure those happen. James uses words here like battles, fights, quarrels, kills, covets. And that's what they can literally lead to in our life when we are living a very self-centered life. For most of us, we will want to trample over things to get what we want. Have you ever been Black Friday shopping? So Walmart puts out this ad that says they're selling 60-inch TVs for 100 bucks, right? And so the whole planet sees this ad, and half of them show up at Walmart, right? And they've got this display out there with 20 TVs on it, and they've got this line that forms about 50 people deep, right? Nobody can touch anything until the clock hits midnight. When it hits midnight, what happens? It's a melee, it's a feeding frenzy. 
It doesn't matter how close to Jesus you are. You're looking at those 20 TVs and going 19, 18, if I don't do something, all them TVs are going to be gone. And so we'll just jump into the pile and try and grab it out of there because all we want is what we want and that's that TV from Walmart. But when we're a believer and we live our life self-focused, that's exactly what our spiritual life looks like. We look like a Black Friday shopper throwing people out of the way to get what we, don't, what we want. We don't care about anyone else and it leads to us being angry and disliking people who are in fact doing the exact same thing that we are doing. Most of the quarrels, fights, and conflicts that happen in the church are because of selfishness. See, we want something our way. We think a ministry should be done like this or like that. And so we get mad if somebody else is doing it a different way than we think it should be done. And then, you know, we get frustrated and it leads to fights and quarrels and and gossip and backbiting and all sorts of things because we look at it and we say, they're doing it wrong. I know how to do it right. And until they get their crap together and start doing it the way I think it should be done, we're going to have problems. These quarrels and fights literally lead to churches dying. I mean, I know of a church here in Lakeland that will not allow any musical instruments other than a piano, and they will not let a projector be used to put the words on the screen. So somebody, it was a friend of mine who interviewed at this church to be the pastor, and uh, he, uh, he said to them, if we do not make these changes, the church is going to die. Their response was, we would rather have the church die than to ever allow a set of drums on the stage. They were literally willing to allow something to die so they could feel, you know, have their selfish desires met of not having drums. They'd come to the conclusion that drums were somehow of the devil, they were wrong, you shouldn't have them on your stage. And they refused to change how they were doing things. And that's not what God wants from us or from our church. But see, that's not all that happens when we become self-centered. James in chapter 4 also tells us that it leads to slandering people, speaking against people, and judging people. And I've personally lived this part of the verse out in a real way. And so I'm going to tell you a story. I don't know if I've ever told this story as in depth as I'm going to tell it uh, this morning. I've mentioned it in other things, but um, I was uh, uh, hired to be a youth pastor at this church. And the previous youth pastor, they had let him go because uh, when he was there, uh, the youth ministry went from 100 kids down to about 20 kids. And uh, the, so every, the board was frustrated, the pastor was frustrated, everyone was frustrated because he had taken this church down so, or this youth ministry down so far to where he was handed. And so I interviewed and um, I, I took the position and here's what I found out. There was a group of four kids that determined everything that was going to happen in this youth ministry. Everything had to go through them, and they were faithfully loyal to the previous youth pastor who had let them do whatever they wanted to do in the youth ministry. So they decided they were going to make life hard for whoever came next, and unfortunately, it was me. 
And like I said, the reason that they liked him so much was because if they wanted to do it, they went to him and said, hey, dude, this is what we want to do. And he would say, all right, let's do it. And that's how they did things. Those four kids ran everything. They dictated how things would go, what things were going to be done, that sort of thing. And the funny thing was is that the kids' parents were totally behind this because they were one of the biggest givers in the church and they felt like that the youth ministry should revolve around their children. Can I tell you, that is an unhealthy situation. And so I looked at this and I said, man, this is super unhealthy. We've got to fix this. And so that's what I did. I came in there and I was like, okay, we're going to fix this. We've got to get it healthy. I'm going to deconstruct the system of the four kids running, having to put everything through them. If they wanted to do it, then it was okay. If they didn't want to do it, then it was not okay. And so I, I started to pull this apart. And so the family started to attack me. They made all kinds of slanderous allegations against me. They, they, sold, uh, they went to the pastor. We'd gone to fine arts in Louisville, Kentucky, and when we got back, they met with the pastor and told the pastor, you know what he did when we were there? We were driving down the road, going back to our hotel from the Yum Center, I think it's called, the big thing in, in, uh, in, in Louisville. Um, he just pulled over on the side of the road, kicked us all out of the vehicle, told us to walk back to the hotel, and took off. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting, but that never happened. Then they said I took them to a restaurant. There's a kind of a theme flowing here. I took them to a restaurant, told them they had to eat here, threw them out of the car, and then I took off and went to my own restaurant and ate at that restaurant. And there was other wild and crazy accusations that were made against me by these kids. And they all had one point and goal in mind. And that was to say enough slanderous stuff so that the pastor would say, okay, it's just too much. You know, you just got to go and get me fired. And it was all because I wanted to fix an unhealthy situation where they were the center of everything. They were very self-centered, they were all about them, and it led them to attack and try and destroy me, or people, but me in particular, quote-unquote, in the name of Jesus. See, that's not what God is calling us to as believers, to slander people. God is not calling us to speak against people, are you ready for this one, even if they have a different political view than us. See, James says that when we do that, we are acting as judge. See, there's only one person that can serve as a judge, and God tells us it's him. We have no authority to judge. So I want to clarify what I mean here when I say judge. So you, know, you have a friend, you know somebody who's got some destructive stuff going on in their life, okay? Stuff that's going to lead them on a path of separation from God and falling short of God's glory. Going to that person and saying to that person, hey man, the path that you are on is a bad path. It's going to lead to destruction and God has called it sin is not judging someone. Okay, see, God has already judged whatever we're talking about. So there's certain things that God has already said fall short of his glory. Now, we have to make sure that God said it, okay? Because sometimes what we do is we add sins to the Bible that aren't necessarily there, and then 
we put them on everybody else as well. If God has told me I shouldn't do something, we conclude that, well, if God has spoken this to me, then he must mean this for everyone. But he doesn't sometimes. Sometimes God has certain things that he has said that each one of us as individuals, hey, this is for you because I know where it will lead in your life. But for other people, it's not as big of a deal. And that's what we're talking about when we say judging people or not judging, or that is not judging people when we look at them and say, you know what, bro, you're going down a road, it's going to lead to destruction. But how we do judge people is if I come in here on a Sunday morning and I stand up and I put people on blast, okay? I stand up here and I say, oh, so-and-so was doing this, so-and-so was doing that, so-and-so was doing this other thing. That is not biblical, that is judging people. Also, we cannot make any determination as to whether or not somebody has gone to heaven or hell, okay? Too many times believers will say, oh, I know where they're going when they die. No, you don't. The only person who knows that is God. God is the only one who can sit in judgment over our individual people's lives. You don't know what's happened in somebody's life to possibly bring them to a point. This is what I tell people this all the time. We are going to get to heaven and we're going to be blown away by who is there and we're going to be blown away by who isn't there, okay? Because God looks at things differently than we do. And so we've got to be careful that we're not sitting in a situation where we're judging other people. And then the final point that we're going to talk about today is that self-centeredness also stifles our prayer. Verse 3 tells us that self-centeredness causes our prayers not to be answered by God. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever looked at what you're praying for, what you're asking for in your prayer time to see how self-centered we are in our praying, and maybe that could be the cause of why we're not seeing more prayers answered? I mean, think about the things that we pray for in life. You know, God, protect my spouse, my kids, my family. Bless me financially and provide for all that I want. We'll pray for our country. We'll pray for our church. Now, see, praying those things is not the problem. But I think it's how we pray for those things. Because when we pray for our country, when people say pray for our country, Here's the general conclusion that I get from people on that. Pray for this country that they will follow my political beliefs. They've done research and found that people are more likely to pray for the president when he or she is from their political party. We pray for financial blessing and the economy to thrive so that we can. When we pray for our church, we pray for ministry to happen the way that we think it should happen. That God will move the pastor and leadership in the direction we think it should go. And if it doesn't go that way, we start asking God if he's taking us to a different church. We want our church to be like Burger King, where you can have it your way. The reason that we pray for the economy and our finances to be strong is usually not so that we can give more to God's kingdom, it's usually so that we can advance our own life. 
And the reason that we don't get what we ask for sometimes is because we're asking for the wrong reasons. And can I say, I am just as guilty of this as everybody else in this room is guilty of this. You know, I pray all the time for this church. God, let this church thrive. Let this church prosper. Let this church grow. Let great things happen. But part of the reason I pray that prayer isn't so that God can get all the glory. It's for other reasons. It's so that people will look at me and say, wow, look at what he's doing over there in Mulberry. Wow, look at, he must be a leader worth following. Look at all the great things that are going on. You know, when I meet other pastors, I want to be able to talk about how well the church is doing. I want to have God's stories of how we are changing lives. I want to be able to make more money because let's be real here. The more people that come, the more income the church has, the more I'll make. Okay, I'm just being honest with you. I'm putting that out there, all right? I pray for my family. Why do I pray for my family? I pray for them to know Jesus and the Jesus life, but it's partly because I want them to live that, and it's partly because I want to make sure that my family is okay so that when you all look at me, you don't think there's something wrong with me because my kids are out of control. Okay? This is is where all of us are many times when we pray. And James is telling us in this text that this is a dangerous place to be in. See, this place leads to our prayers not being answered. So instead, he challenges us to rethink how we pray. And he's not saying that we should never pray for ourselves. If we or someone we know and love needs healing, we need to pray. If we need God to show up in our finances or we aren't going to make it, we need to pray for ourselves. If a family member has gone off the rails and they need to get back on track, we need to pray. We need to pray for our kids. We need to pray for our spiritual protection and God's hand on our life. But we need to remember that in all things, we need to ask for God's glory in every single one of those situations. See, when we pray for our personal finances, our focus there should not be that we can get more so that we can finally afford the Disney passes or the $40,000 pickup truck we've always wanted. It should be so that we can do more financially to advance God's kingdom through our church. When we pray for our church, it should be so that the pastor and leadership have the wisdom and can hear God's voice clearly to take the church in the direction that God is calling it to go and that our hearts will be prepared for wherever it is God is taking us. For our kids, our prayer should be that God would be glorified in their lives, whatever this may look like. We should pray the same thing for our spouses and the other members of our family, And I feel this, I feel like I say this a lot, but I want to repeat it again today because I read another article about about a man who walked away from his faith because God did not answer his prayer and his life did not turn out the way he thought it should. The life you are living now is not a reward for how holy and good you have been acting. See, we can't avoid problems in life by acting as Christianly as possible. See, the guy in this article I read said he did everything right. He was a good kid. He went to church when he was a kid. He got good grades in school. He he waited until he got married to have sex. He tithed. He read his Bible. He prayed. He went on missions trips. He helped people. He was involved in the church, and he was just a general good person. But his whole life still fell apart. And he held God for his personally responsible because in his words, he said, God did not hold up his end of the bargain. We don't have a contract with God, people. 
We don't have a contract that we sign when we give our lives to Christ that says, okay, I promise to live for you. You promise to make sure my life always goes the way I want and nothing bad happens. See, when you read the Bible, if you start in the Old Testament and read all the way through the New Testament, what you will discover is this. The men and women who walked more closely with God endured more crap, junk, and garbage in this life than the average person. See, the closer you get to him and his plan for your life, the more challenging it's going to be. Why? There's two reasons. The first is the more you do God's will, the more the enemy our soul is going to come against you. The second reason is... um, Going through troubles and problems in our life refines us. See, when the heat is on, when we are under pressure, is when God is able to work the junk out of us that is there. And I say those words with caution because as I look around this room, I know that there's some of you who have been through a lot and are going through a lot and, and, and I'm looking at myself and I, I say to myself, why have I not had to endure as much as some of the other people in this room had to endure? And I'm fearful that I'm not doing enough for Jesus because nothing is really messing with me too much. All right, so I got off topic a little bit. The point of all of this is we have real tendency to be selfish about our prayers. And then when things don't go the way we think they should, we walk away from God. We walk away because of our selfish desires. So the text tells us that when our hearts are really selfish and we care more about ourselves than we do Jesus, that he is in fact envious. And this word envy here, the reason James used this and he used this bold bold wording was because he really wanted us to go back to the Old Testament and make us think he was speaking like an Old Testament prophet because he really wanted to get their attention. The Old Testament prophets, one of their primary concerns was the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel. And James wanted the church to know, look, when you get off into selfishness, you're being unfaithful to God. Because God can handle us cheating on him with no one, not even ourselves, okay? And I know that sounds a little weird. Um, might bring up some sort of imagery, but let's, let's forget about that. He says the word adulterous here because he wants us to understand, look, God looks at us. And when we take and we put ourselves on our throne in our life, when we put our wants, our needs, our desires in that spot, We are taking him out of that spot and he doesn't want to be anywhere else. The first commandment is, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. But when we put our selfish desires ahead of everything else, we are putting another God, ourselves, ahead of God. It's hindering our prayers and it's keeping us from the life that Jesus has for us. We need to free our prayers, our life, from this self-centered place. So how do we get there? James makes it quite clear. We need to repent. He calls us to repentance from the sin of self-centeredness. He says, humble ourselves before the Lord. Wash our hands, get clean. See, the only way we're going to break free from self-centeredness in our life is if we can recognize it, one, in ourselves, and then be able to go to God with our self-centeredness and set it before Him and say, God, I repent of putting myself on the throne of my life. 
God, I repent of doing all of these things because it's caused so many problems and issues in my life. It's caused conflict with people. It's caused my prayers not to be answered. It's caused slander and other sorts of things. And God, I don't want it that way. And so we go to him and we repent and we ask him to come and wash us and cleanse us and humble us. And see, as we go to him with that prayer and we really humble ourselves before the Lord, he comes in. And he removes us from that spot in our life. And he helps to remind us each and every single day of who it is that should sit on the throne of our life. And so it comes down to us this morning in this room in asking ourselves that one simple question. Are we selfish? Have we given in to the selfish message of this society that we live in? Or have we humbled ourselves and allowed God to remove that selfishness from our throne? I can't answer that question. The only person who can answer that question is you by God searching your heart and speaking and revealing it to you. And so we're gonna pray. If everybody could please close their eyes and bow their heads. Thank you for joining us on the FAM Church Podcast. FAM Church is here to connect people to Christ. If you live in or are visiting the Lakeland, Florida area, we would love for you to join us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. You can also check us out online at myfamchurch.com. Thank you again and have an amazing day.